Um, that last sentence of the scripture reading of Galatians 5, uh, specific, specifically the last part of verse 12, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Um, that is every bit as offensive as you think it might be. Um, so you get the sense that the Apostle Paul is not a big fan of false teachers. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, is we're going to now be spending some time together in 1 Timothy, and we're going to be kicking off um, a series in which we're going to march through 1 and 2 Timothy. So I want to encourage you, uh, if you could open up your pew Bibles to 1 and 2 Timothy. There's a few things that I want to lay out for you um, that we need to understand before we dive into this text today. And <clears throat> Number one, we need to understand Jesus in the Old and in the New Testament. We need to understand the Apostle Paul, who is writing to Timothy. Uh, we need to understand Timothy. Who is he? Uh, and also, we need to understand the church in Ephesus. So let's just kind of uh, um, clear this up the best that we possibly can this morning. Um, the cultural thought more and more that's making its way into um, students like Peter who just stood up here and even for a lot of your children and even maybe for your kids in college and who may now be young adults or young professionals is this. Um, the Old Testament is an angry God. Jesus bailed us out from that angry God and then everything after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is really a bunch of guys who wrote some letters, but you can negate, take in whatever you want because contextually it was 2,000 years ago. So if it makes you uncomfortable, you can just delete it. It doesn't matter. Uh, when in fact, this is a really important thing to understand. We see in John 1 that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, and the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, are in fact present at creation. We see that the second person of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament shows up from time to time. We then, of course, see the ministry of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then, of course, we see the writings of Jesus or the way in which we are called to live as followers of Jesus. So to be clear, the letters that you read in First and Second Timothy are letters that are written actually to a pastor but have application for all of us. The way of understanding that is the Gospels are Jesus' life, His ministry, and His teachings. All subsequent letters that you see are actually how a life is, should be lived, rightly orientated to the ministry, the work, and the person of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul wasn't just making stuff up. We see that the Apostle Paul was actually discipled by Jesus Himself in Galatians 1. So my point is, is, this isn't an angry God in the Old Testament. This is a very missional God. He's a very loving God. He has kindness that goes on and on and on in love from generation to generation who seeks to reach His people, who reaches out to them and pursues them. And we see that carried out again with Jesus. And then we see the mandate on the church and who are given the exact same call. Go and make disciples of all nations. Engage the community. So all of this is tied together. That's very, very important. To understand. Next, we need to understand Paul. And what I'd like you to do is turn to page 1231 in your pew Bible. I'll make this easier on you because we're going to jump around a little bit. 1231, it should be Philippians 3. In the event you get a rogue Bible, I'm sorry. Hold it up and don't complain too loud and just switch it out with somebody else. All right? Uh, so if you got a rogue Bible, I'm sorry. You should be 1231, Philippians chapter 3. And this is a way of understanding the Apostle Paul. We're going to pick it up at verse 4. Philippians 3, verse 4 to 7. 
And this is the Apostle Paul talking. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So you have the Apostle Paul who has uh, a, a Jewish side of his life and also a Greek side of his world. His father was Greek. His father was a Roman citizen. Therefore, the Apostle Paul, when he was born, was also a Roman citizen by birth. He also had a, and that name, by the way, his, his Hebrew name, his Jewish name, would have been Saul. Saul could connect his lineage all the way to the tribe of Benjamin. The most prominent person in the tribe of Benjamin was Saul. That's who Saul was named after. From his Greek side, he was given the name Paul. So he had both names going. But he introduced himself up to this point in his life as Saul. We see that he was uh, very much zealous. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, in Matthew 11, when we read Jesus saying to um, to the Jews, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Why were they so weary and burdened if you remember? It was this unbelievable list of laws and requirements that went on for days and days. The Apostle Paul in his heyday as a Pharisee would be like, what's the big deal? All day, every day. I can fulfill all of it. I appear as holy and as righteous as anyone you've ever seen. And he understood that. Matter of fact, he was so zealous for the law that he was the chief persecutor of the early church. We see that in Acts 7.58, he was at the stoning of Stephen. We see in Acts chapter 8, he basically signed off on the stoning of Stephen. He wasn't just an innocent bystander. We see then Acts 8 verses 3, he's causing havoc over the entire church. We see in Acts chapter 9, though, he meets Jesus. And his world begins to change. And we see in Galatians 1 that he actually learned from Jesus. He was discipled by Jesus, not the early church, not the other apostles, but by Jesus himself. A complete life transformation occurred from a man who was persecuting the church to now the man that was the chief lead missionary for the purpose and the cause of Christ. One man, one life. And we see that by Acts 13, 9, he does away with the name Saul. And now in preaching to Gentiles, he takes on his Greek name, Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. Now I want to tell you a little bit about Timothy. Timothy means the one who honors God. His mother's name was Eunice. His, his great-grandmother's name was Lois. Um, they were both devout Jews. Like the Apostle Paul, he had a Greek father. So like the Apostle Paul, he had kind of the dual, uh, if you want to think of it as citizenship in a way. His father was a Greek and most likely died before the Apostle Paul and Timothy ever started working together. The Apostle, uh, the, uh, Timothy met the Apostle Paul in his late teens. And we believe that by the time he receives this letter in 1 Timothy, he's about 35 years of age. He'd followed the, uh, the Apostle Paul everywhere. I'll just give you a few highlights. He was with Paul in Corinth when he wrote his letter to Rome. Uh, he was with Paul when he wrote 2 Corinthians. He was with Paul in prison when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. He was with Paul when he wrote the, wrote the Colossians. He was with Paul when he wrote Philemon. And that's just a few details. The point is, Timothy was the protege of the Apostle Paul. 
He was the person that for a 20-year period that the Apostle Paul walked with, taught, discipled, shaped, molded. That's who this person was. He is the example with which Timothy, uh, he wanted Timothy to be in the likeness of Paul. And so this is very important to understand. And the last piece, though, is what we understand and what on earth is going on in the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus has changed and evolved. And it's the church in Ephesus that Timothy is being charged with pastoring. And so what I want you to hear is 10 years, roughly, before Timothy shows up to the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul is leaving the church in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul spent three years in the church in Ephesus. And in Acts 20, where I'd like you to turn now, that's in page 1165, Acts 20, verses 18 and following. These are the Apostle Paul's final words to the church in Ephesus. He's getting on a boat and he's leaving. This is his final words to the church. And there will be ten years that will go by that then Timothy will show up to this same church sent by Paul. So here is the Apostle Paul's words to the leaders in the church in Ephesus. Acts 20, verses 18, page 1165 in your pew Bible. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now... Compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. Now here's the key verse. I know that after I leave, Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. So the Apostle Paul gets on a boat. He leaves and he warns them that there will be wolves amongst you that will rise up and be prepared. And we see that 10 years later, that is exactly what's happened. And so this is the Apostle Paul now writing Timothy, his first letter. And so you know this letter would be read out loud to the whole church. This isn't just something personally just for Timothy, though it's an encouragement to him. It is a letter for everyone to hear. And so this is now 1 Timothy 1, if you'd please join me. And keep in mind, if you want to know the setting, big picture, this is about A.D. 64. So this is roughly 30 years after Jesus had died and risen again. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now let's just stop there real quick because I feel compelled to tell you this. 
In any given sermon I give, I roughly have four to six sources that I will, will, will kind of feed off of to gain insight and wisdom. Uh, I make no shame about that. So if you ever hear something in which you're like, wow, he is as wise as a 65-year-old man, it's probably because I'm quoting a 65-year-old man, okay? And if you ever want to know where those sources came from, I will willingly tell you who I'm listening to for this week, what I'm reading for this week. Um, the goal here is to help mold you and guide you in the ways and the will of God, period. Um, and so I just want to point out first and foremost to you in verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The apostle Paul is the only one who flips that. Jesus is always referred to as Jesus Christ in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul flips it. Some scholars believe that the reason for that is that Jesus would be kind of his earthly name. Christ means Messiah, so that's like a, the divine name. Well, how did all the other disciples know Jesus? Well, first they knew him as a man. Then they was revealed to him that, they were, that he was, in fact, God. How did the Apostle Paul meet him? He met him as God. You'll always see the Apostle Paul flip it. Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. And then he says, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, a command. In other words, this isn't up for debate. This isn't up for discussion. I'm not taking a poll on how you feel about what you're about to hear. That as sure as I'm writing this, this is from the command of God. It's not just my thoughts, says the Apostle Paul. This is coming to you from God, and you should receive it as such, and it is a mandate to you as the church based off of what he's beginning to hear is going on. Verse 2, To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, <clears throat> Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he's also affirming, this guy Timothy, he's my son, he's my protege, he's the real deal. Listen to him. Verse 3, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to te teach false doctrines any longer. Matthew 7.15, Jesus said this, Watch out for false prophets that they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious wolves. Sheep's clothing would be that of a prophet. In other words, a false teacher comes to you looking like a prophet, looking like a true teacher, saying things that tickle the ear, that seem real and true and honest and genuine and centered on God, but in fact they're not. The end game with all false prophets and false teachers, by the way, is power and money. It's getting the money out of your wallet and going into theirs. It's taking the power from you and usurping it for themselves. That's, that's the end game for all false prophets, false teachers. So he says, be weary of this. And I have to tell you as your pastor, there's two words in verse 3 that hit me the hardest. Stay there. And that's just on a personal level. As I read, stay there just kept hitting me. You want to see something happen profound at Pilgrim? You want to see a church that reaches into the community? Then you have to stay there. And if need be, take your beating like a man, right? The beatings will continue until morale improves. Isn't that an old Marine saying, right? Hasn't been too tough. Hasn't been too bad. But the truth is, you got to stay. If you want to build culture, if you want to build legacy, if you want to build something into which is passed down from one generation of leadership to the next generation of leadership, of one mindset of a, of a complete culture shift of a church that has a profound impact on its community, it can't have people that come and go. I'm not saying it's a marriage of sorts, but it's definitely not a business transaction. It's somewhere in between. 
It's a commitment. So there's good days and bad days. And the good news will be, God willing, I'll get to the point where you know all my quirks and the weird things that I do and the weird things that I may say or do, and at some point it won't go from being offensive to annoying to just funny. It's like you and your spouse. You know what they're going to ask before they ask it, right? I've already been trained. Yes, I know the plate. Put it in the trash. I'm sorry. The second I hear what's with the, I know there's the plate. It's supposed to go in the trash. I've been married five years. I already know how the sentence is going to end. And that's how it'll go here. There'll be this weird, beautiful give and take where I will know you and you will know me, but the key is we all got to stay. And that can be ugly and harsh and difficulty and challenging, but it is this unique relationship. It's not just pop in and pop out. It's not how it works. So you got to stay, verse 4. Or to devote themselves to myth and endless genealogy, such things provoke controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. We never know exactly what's going on, but we know that the false teaching is probably mixing some kind of Greek agnostic belief system, some kind of an odd thing that bottom line isn't taking them to the mindset of who Jesus is as the sole way for salvation. If you just look at the letter, he actually has to open up by equating God and Jesus. So there's already an issue there. Somehow they've, they've, they've lost track that Jesus is God. And then we're going to see in a little bit in the letter, he basically remixes the Ten Commandments. So the most basic understanding of who God is, God's perfect will for our lives, has been lost in a matter of ten years. And so we're having to set this straight. We never get a, a good idea of what all is going on, but that's basically what is, what's happening. Verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know that they are talking about or by what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and irreligious, uh, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and for practicing those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so here's the thing. Uh, God's righteousness and God's law is problematic for people who are ignorant of their lack of righteousness and God's supreme righteousness. For people who are aware that they lack perfect righteousness. They therefore appeal to God's righteousness. The law is a good thing for people who know they're not righteous. And so what the Apostle Paul does just then is he basically reeled off the Ten Commandments, whether you realize it or not. Lawbreakers and rebels. You shall have no other God before me. The ungodly and the sinful. You shall not make idols. I mean, you can just keep going through that list, and it's essentially the Ten Commandments. Our relationship to God and our relationship to each other. This is fascinating how the wheels have come off of this church. And this is what is so profound about the teaching is that Jesus actually now is pressing on people's hearts and motivation. In other words, it isn't enough anymore to just not kill someone. It's not enough to just not tell a lie. It's no longer just not enough to not commit adultery. That's why Jesus flips the whole thing. You people look righteous, he says, but if you 
look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. My goodness, how much adultery is in here? Right? If you've ever hated someone in your heart, you've just committed murder. This is what Jesus starts attacking is the motivations. He even talks about being a liar. You know what's interesting? Culturally, we love to lie to ourselves. We do it all the time. Can I get, I'll give you one example of how we lie to ourselves. You ready for this? Self-deception. Youth sports. We actually pay someone to tell us what we want to hear about our kid. Did you ever notice that? I was actually on the other side of this. I was actually a coach. And what I would find is that parents would pay me and they would tell me that their kid, they want their kid to be Division I. Why now they keep telling themselves that their kid is going to be Division I, and they keep telling themselves, if I pay this guy enough, my kid will be Division I. And I never had the heart to look at a, a father in the eye and say, okay, you were awesome in high school, and your kid was great, and your wife was great at math. Genetically, that's just not going to happen. Your son's 5'6", five, 5'7". But they don't want to believe that. People want to lie to themselves. They want to tell themselves what they want to believe. And if we're really honest, even just self-deception is a big issue. And we can pay for that, or we can just tell ourselves. But this is where Jesus flips the whole thing on its ear. He makes it about our hearts, our motivation. And so the Apostle Paul lays all this out. I think what's so important to understand is that as, G as the Apostle Paul was leaving 10 years ago, 10 years before this letter was written, the people and the elders at Ephesus, as they waved goodbye and the boat disappeared over the horizon, didn't look at each other and go, okay, well, let's start teaching heresy. Let's do it. That didn't happen that way. Conversely, let me put it this way. No pastor that graduates walks across that stage receives his diploma and thinks, you know what I want in 20 years? I want to be bitter, exhausted, and lack energy. That's what I want. No pastor says that. You know what? There's no person that joins a church and says, you know what I'm passionate about? Small groups and gossip. That's what I'm passionate about. The gospel and gossip. Two G's. I love them. You know what I'm passionate about? Local missions, abroad missions, creating some dissension in the church and destroying it. That's what I love. No one says that. No one thinks that way. That's not an, an intention, necessarily. So how did that happen? And why do we have to be careful? It's because Satan doesn't just sit back and go, oh, good job, pilgrim. Way to go. He never stops. Shut this angle down. I'll come at you this way. Shut that angle down. I'll come at you this way. Matthew 18, Matthew 22, Matthew 28. People that talk to each other, not about each other. People that love their neighbors, even if they don't understand their neighbors. Even if their neighbors around them have changed. They love their neighbors and they love their God. A church that understands the mission and the purpose of God. See, what happened is the church at Ephesus, it made two mistakes. One, it tried to change its theology, which is always a temptation of the church. People don't like the message. People think the message is abrasive. People think, well, I've got to change theology so that people will find it more accepting. So they sell out. Or conversely, they become apathetic. There's no hope. This is pointless. The culture's too far off the rails. We can't do anything about it. Let's just give up. And neither is true, because if you look at verse, uh, the last verse here, 
Verse 11, that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory, the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. In other words, what we've been entrusted with is the gospel. It's the message that Jesus so loves this world that he would give his only son. That Jesus will pursue all people. That Jesus is out and working in your relationships, in your job, in your community. He is at work. And he so wants to draw every man, woman, and child to himself. And he's entrusted that message with us. Actually, the more off the rails our culture gets, the more applicable the New Testament becomes. This is the truth. And so I want to set you up with one final thought before I let us go this morning from this time. I want you to write something down, and you can either put it on your phone, if you got your phone, uh, or if you have a pen, you can write it on your bulletin. And it's a, it's a concept that I've, uh, I have belabored uh, with so many different groups of people that some people have now heard this three or four times and they're going to be sick of hearing it, which is good, because then we'll all know it. Outstanding. Okay, so what I want you to write is two columns here. And at one column, I want you to write old. In the other column, I want you to write new. Underneath old, I want you to write behave, believe, and belong. Under the new column, I want you to write belong, believe, behave. So under the old, behave, believe, belong. Under the new, belong, believe, behave. And by the way, someone like me with audio processing order, this is is for you right now, okay? If you have audio processing disorder, it's because I love you. You ready? Old, I would need it a third time, no lie, okay? Here we go. Behave, believe, belong. New is belong, believe, behave. So, If you are my age and up, guess what? Okay, I'm 34. 34 to 84 in this room, we're all in the old school mentality, believe it or not. If you have people in here in your 20s, they're kind of the transition. Okay, so as Lutherans, this was our paradigm. In other words, we understood how to behave. We were told how to behave. What was acceptable in the Lutheran church? Where we stood on social issues, so on and so forth. You didn't question it. Now, you may have acted differently when no one was looking, But by and large, you knew when to say yes, and you knew when to say no, and you were trained that way. How to behave as a good Lutheran, right? Get those stars all across your chest at uh, VBS or whatever, going to Sunday school. And so you learned that. And then the next thing was believe. You believed what we told you to believe. You'd even say that this is what I believe. And then what happened? How did we reward you? We told you that you belonged. You're a member. Congratulations. Parents, they're in eighth grade. High five and it's over, right? You did your job. The church did their job. Let's move on. And so this is what happened. We said behave, believe, belong. And I'll case in point, 30 years ago, there's certain sermons I could preach on social issues where I would just probably be able to high five the choir 30 years ago. Case in point, I have to walk a very different tightrope nowadays because even in this room right here, there's whole differing views on a whole host of issues. That isn't settled anymore. So look at the new paradigm. Now the new paradigm, you may agree with, you may argue against, you may not like, but it's just true. Okay? Here it is. And it's this. That we now, people want to know, will they be accepted first? Do you accept me? Don't judge me. Only God can judge me. Sound familiar? Acceptance, acceptance, acceptance. So that means that people first want to be accepted. Only until that they are accepted will they begin to believe what you believe. 
And only until they believe what you believe and have been accepted, then you'll see their behavior change. In other words, you will have times in which sitting in this church will be people who do not believe a word I'm saying. And they're like sitting out here. They think it's all crazy. But you invited them to church. Why? Why'd you do that? You invited them in your community group. Why? Because you want them to belong. The first phase is belong. So if you get an engagement with someone, get in a conversation, and they tell you don't believe in God, you don't go, oh, well, I'm headed to church. Talk to you later. That's not how it works. They have to belong. And then belief, which means that even people who would confess what we confess, the last thing that changes is their behavior, their life, the way that it manifests itself in our own community. So, this is where we're at. We're in a culture in which the church just got a lot messier. We're in a culture where more now than ever we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Where we must cover this place in prayer. And just as this church needed to be rightly centered on the work and the, the faithful love of Jesus, so we too in our community today have to do the same. We need the same Jesus we have the gospel message. It's been entrusted to us. And so we give this out freely and openly and we invite people to belong. And when they belong, they begin to see that there's something different that we have. And when they see that we have something different, then behavior comes last. And in the meantime, it is every bit as messy as the New Testament church. Welcome. <laughs>